Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. There happens to be many houses of the Lord. This is my favorite. Remember, it's more important to believe than to feel. And as we were singing that third hymn, O Crimson Flow, I hope the words are not lost on you. So next time that song comes up, uh, if you've missed it, pay attention to the lyrics, how much Christ put into them. Uh, one other thing, I challenge you next week, next Sunday, get here early and sit in someone else's seat, and let's see what happens. All right. Now that we've broken the ice, let's turn to Peter's uh, second letter, Second Peter chapter 3. We are introducing Paul's letter to the Romans this morning, and we're going to do it with a foreword from Peter. Second Peter chapter 3. We are going to stand and take verses 15 and 16. And so would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. <clears throat> and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. Please be seated. What an endorsement. When Peter wrote these words, Paul may have already been in heaven. He certainly had finished all of his writings, with perhaps the exception of 2 Timothy. But uh, he says here, our beloved brother Paul. Paul was the man that put Peter in his place. And Peter, <clears throat> man enough to not let that dim the friendship, his respect for Paul, his ability to see how much God was using that man. <clears throat> He says also, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. Well, that shows that Paul's letters were ranked as scripture in Peter's lifetime. He is saying Paul's letters, his writings, are every bit the Bible that Genesis is, that Isaiah is. Peter said to twist Paul's writings is to damn one's soul, meaning Paul's writings were God's word. And so you come to a letter like Romans, and it's not just, okay, this is what <clears throat> the first of a few Christian writings. I think it is a puny and pathetic argument to say, well, I don't believe in the Bible because man wrote it. That immediately limits God. You have just bound God to your standards. And instead of examining the information, you have already closed it down. And it is, um, of course, to the one who uses that argument or that comeback, <clears throat> I think they don't want God to be God. They want to be in control. In Romans chapter 1, 
Paul writes to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome was the very place Satan did not want Paul to reach. We covered that going through the last two chapters of Acts. Everyone knew all roads led to Rome, but Satan knew that they also led from Rome, and that bothered him when a man like Paul was going to be there. Paul wrote in first in Romans chapter 1, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And by this time, by the time that this letter, oh, well, this letter was written about three years before Paul's shipwreck adventure. So when he goes on the ship, the letter was already read by Satan. He already knew what was in that letter, and he knew that Paul, reaching Rome, could write, he could preach, and he could reach the world. And he did. He went to Rome, and, and he wrote Ephesians and Colossians, Philippians and Philemon, and maybe other documents also that we don't have. He made converts there. We covered some of that and he, as we went through, finished up in Acts. So Satan understood this. The city of the Caesars, the city of lost souls. But God defeated Satan's plans, which were to drown. And if he couldn't drown Paul, he tried to stab him. And if he couldn't stab him to death, he tried to poison him to death. All of that failed. And Luke sums it up. We came to Rome. Not a happy ending for the devil. Three cheers in heaven for that one. We can thwart Satan's plans. Every Christian can. Why, though, is this letter to the Romans considered Paul's doctrinal masterpiece? Well, my answer is because of its aggressive teachings on Christianity's essentials. A defining verse is Romans 5. I think every Christian loves this. Where sin abounded, grace did much more. How much theology is behind that? How much theology is that built on? A lot. In this letter, he reaches Jews and he reaches Gentiles. He talks about sin and faith and salvation. He poured out on the Romans. I don't for one minute think that was his initial thought. The words faith and sin dominate the letter because he's dealing with these things. Faith is the antidote to sin. And salvation is the outcome. And the title of this series is Sin, Faith, and Salvation. Last time we did Romans, it was the masterpiece of God. Next time, when we get to heaven, I'll do it again. I'll know better and then you can learn. Anyway. The word faith appears more in Romans than any other book in the Bible. Now, ratio-wise, there are others that use the, that, uh, the percentage is higher, but still that says quite a bit. In fact, in the New Testament, the word sin appears most in Romans than any other book in the New Testament. Hannah, the mother of that incredible prophet Samuel, he is one of the greatest characters in Scripture. She sums up the beauty of salvation in just a few words. 1 Samuel chapter 8, 
He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. You're not going to find a better summary of what salvation is all about than that. You'll find as good, but not better. She's the one that wrote the words, but the author is God. The Holy Spirit moved in her heart. And what a poetic metaphor of life lifted from the dunghill. Because this life is cursed. It is under the curse. And we are called to function in the midst of it. And it it is a profound statement on salvation. And the Roman letter lays out how God deals with sin. And how faith is paramount. And how salvation is sure. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's blessed assurance. And some theologians would like to take that from you and him and haw over this. Don't let it happen. I'd rather believe the Bible, especially when it's just as clear as that. Paul's not giving a different gospel, but fresh insights, spelling out the ABCs of salvation. You younger Christians especially, I hope, I hope this is not being lost on you. I hope you don't think this is just a lecture about something in the Bible. These are real people, and you've got to find yourself in the story. And we're going to come to some of the real people that are the ingredients behind this letter reaching Rome, the very thing Satan did not want to do or happen. So in the face of sin's counterattacks on our faith, Paul answers questions. He puts it in question and answer format. Shall we then sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And he goes on to answer. He, he turns down a lot of rabbit holes, too. He starts on something, he just goes off the subject, and it's all profound. It drives those who insist on outlining everything a little mad, but that's okay. It's harmless overall. Let the letter speak for itself. He condemns sin while rescuing sinners. That's God's approach, and that's how Paul lays it out. Therefore, Romans 5.1 having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. His doctrines always lined up. When we get to the next session, when we get to the first maybe one to seven verses, one to five verses, and not sure yet how far we'll get, we're going to find out he opens up with Jesus Christ the Lord, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Because he loves the Lord so much. He went on to write in the third chapter, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he deals with sin, he deals with faith, he deals with salvation, and other things that support, go into this. I mentioned that any pastor that makes habit of standing in the pulpit and avoiding sin is making the same offering Cain offered to God, a fruit basket, no blood on it. Sin caused death. And God never swept it under the rug, never looked the other way immediately went right into damage control because he had planned this from the foundations of the world to get for himself a people from this life who would love him sight unseen based on truth. Again, it's not important, as important to feel as it is to believe. If I'm singing a hymn, I don't have to feel like I like the song, but I have to believe what it's saying. 
to me, that is very important because I'm not going to let my moods dictate to me my Christianity. My faith is what matters most. <clears throat> it doesn't say, you know, the just shall live by feelings. The just shall live by faith, said Paul. He says it in Romans. He says it in Galatians. He says it in Hebrews. He's quoting the prophet Habakkuk. And God, the Holy Spirit, said, I want this repeated to my New Testament saints. They cannot miss this point. So it took a man with the right theology, the right understanding of God, an iron will, and a high tolerance for suffering. Well, I can, I can get my theology together. I, I can put some iron into my will. But that tolerance for suffering thing, I'm still working on that one, and I don't want anybody helping me, <laughs> giving me things to suffer, to, to work it out. This is the kind of man that wrote this kind of letter. Now, you hear it called a book, but it's a letter. Perhaps a quick way to make that distinction is text versus email. You can be a little wordy in a text. You can attach things to it. You can research it in an email. But a text is more, you know, right off that moment. I mean, you can do some of that too, but overall. Where Luke writes the book of Acts, which is about... 18,000 words, almost 19,000 words. Romans is 7,400 and something. And it is remarkable that the man who sat down to write a letter created a book. And we want to talk about some of that too. But it took this kind of man with this will, with this tolerance for suffering, to disentangle rabbinical teachings and pagan influences without being entangled himself. He's not sucked into meaningless arguments. He'll warn about that. When you get to chapters 14 and 15, he's going to go with the food fighting deal because he had the Jews with the pork, he had the, the, the pagans eating anything. And, and Paul's saying, look, we're not going to get messed up with this. We're not going to allow this to divide us, sidetrack us. He warns Timothy as a pastor, don't be entangled with the things of the world. You stay focused as a soldier of the Lord, a man who would stand up to his enemies. That was Paul. But he also stood up to his friends, as I mentioned, about Peter. And Barnabas, beloved Barnabas, when they both found themselves on the wrong side of Christ, Paul engaged them both. And they never stopped loving him. Today, you correct some Christians, oh, brother, you better watch out. You hurt their feelings, and they're going to stick it to you if they can. It's not all of them. But enough of them. It shouldn't happen once. It happens too often. The church discipline falls on somebody and they're going to strike back. Jesus had much more to do after he ascended to heaven. That's what the entire book of Acts is about. Of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Acts chapter 1 verse 1. But he also had a lot more to say. He tells us that in John chapter 16. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Again, back to some Christians. You can't put restrictions on them. You can't tell them. You're not ready yet. They're offended by that. Christ is telling his disciples, there are things you're just not ready for yet. You've got to wait. We should receive these things. Much of what is said in this letter is Jesus going on to say the things that he had to say which they weren't ready then, but they're ready now. 
Some Christians can't stand more than a 10-minute Bible study, which isn't a Bible study at all. Well, it could be. I take that back a little bit. Somebody put me up to saying that. I'm not going to take the blame for it. <laughs> Second Corinthians, Paul writes to them, and he, he says, Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, which is saying, he's saying to them, you know Christ speaks through me. He's not the only one, but he's talking about himself in relation to the Corinthians. So Christ does speak to his people. He does work through his people. That Christ being dead speaks as the authority of God because he is God the Son. And may we never lose sight of that doctrine. Sin, faith, and salvation. All sin and face the consequence of death. The proof of sin ultimately is death. Our last enemy, the Bible says. Romans 3, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What happens if you're outside of Christ Jesus our Lord? Well, you're likely not going to benefit from it. However, Paul's going to spend a whole section dealing with that question. And it is going to be satisfying. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not Paul, not Moses. Christ died. There are those that have another puny and pathetic argument. Well, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. No Christian is good enough to be a Christian. That's why it says he demonstrates his own love towards us while we were still sinners. And wait for us to be good. You'll never make it. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. That's Old Testament doctrine. And it's New Testament also. And so the next time somebody run that one by you, run Romans 5.8 by them. Let them know that you're either making an excuse to reject Christ or out of ignorance you need to be corrected so you can receive him. Romans 10.10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Things have to be activated. It's not enough that you're aware of something. You have to act on them. And that's what Paul is saying there in Romans 10, verse 10, chapter 10. God has provided salvation from death of sin through the resurrection of Jesus, which is about 25 years, the resurrection of Christ, about 25 years before this letter was written. Authored by the Holy Spirit, of course, with profound assurance. Now, I like to quote John 5, 1 John 5, 13. I've written to you these things that you may be assured of your salvation. Well, it's in Romans too, and it's elsewhere, but let's just take the one, one of them out of many from Romans. I am persuaded, Paul wrote, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No, nothing's left out of that. That's the spiritual realm. That's the physical realm. That's physics. It's people. It's devils and demons. None of them can separate me from Christ. One reason why this letter is so loved by many Christians. I prefer narratives. The Gospels, Acts, Samuel. Some of you prefer the Psalms. Maybe it's Genesis. Maybe it's Romans or 1 John. It's okay. 
It's all the same author. And it appeals to however, how, however we are built. And we are built. We are exposed to things in life, our environment, our teachers, our attackers. These things form, they shape us. And not to mention the raw ingredients that we're born with. And God says, I use all that. And he does. If he finds a vessel that is submitted to him, as Paul was, how do you submit? How do you become a vessel, a righteous vessel submitted to God? We have to empty yourself. Look, John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. Pour me out, pour him in. It's a very simple formula. The Gospels gives us the Savior. Acts show us the saved in action based on what Christ did. Romans further explains it all. Gives us more detail. Now we need to talk about that church in Rome because you're in the church right now, physically sitting in a church in Mechanicsville, Virginia. They were sitting in a church in Rome, Italy. It applies to us every bit as it applied to them. The Roman congregations existed long before this letter arrived and even longer before Paul finally got there about four or five years later after he wrote the letter. Paul wrote this letter before he was arrested in the temple in Jerusalem and that started that trek two years with Felix and then the time in between the the six months or so in Malta before he finally gets to Rome. And Gentiles were initially the minority amongst the Christian Jews that still attended the synagogues. In Acts chapter 18, we read that when Paul came to Corinth, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Let me tell you, this is a courageous couple. And I think, I think Aquila was more the muscle and Priscilla was more the mouth. And I mean this in a good way, and you'll see how it, how it might have been. Because as time as Paul writes, Priscilla becomes the, the first one he addresses. So he certainly bonded with her in a virtuous way. Roman historian Suetonius, a biographer of Roman emperors, he has this little thing about the Christians and Jews in Rome. And uh, he, he says that, it was because of Crestus, which is a corruption of Christ, probably unintentional. But um, he refers to the disturbances within the Jewish communities because of Crestus, because of Christ, Christos. And you had the Christians in Rome attending synagogue with their Jewish families and friends. And they're saying, Christ is Messiah. And they were saying, no, he's not. And you had this confrontation so much that the authorities of Rome said, you know what? Especially the ringleaders, get out. Chase them out of Rome. There is no known Jewish male name by this in that time in history, probably in any time. So we know that they're not talking about a particular Jewish leader. They're talking about Christ. Remember when the pagans wrote about the Christians, they didn't really understand Christianity. So they just gave you a couple of tidbits. Even Josephus, a Jewish historian, when he talks about Christ, he gives you a couple of tidbits. But he doesn't really understand. A carnal man cannot receive or know the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. 
So I think it was a limited action that the ringleaders were put out, even though Luke says all the Jews were put out. And the reason why I say that, because there's no historical evidence of the Jews being pushed out. But it's a, it's a detail that is overcome very quickly when you understand the nature of writing and uh, getting to the facts. From these two, Aquila and Priscilla, Paul began to fall in love with Rome. I, I say that because they're going to stick their necks out. He meets them in Corinth once they're pushed out of Rome. And they're going to tell him about, we got pushed out for preaching Christ. He's going to tell, they, they stay friends the entire time we, of the history of the scripture we have, the New Testament scripture. There's never a parting of the ways, even though there's, they, go, they go to Rome before Paul does. But he, he, he writes this in the end of Romans when he's greeting everybody he knows in the church at Rome, and you factor in how, how many did he not know? Romans 16.34, greet Priscilla. You see now she's mentioned ahead of <clears throat> Aquila, her husband. Later he will say Prisca in another letter because, she, you know, the bond. <clears throat> greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom... Not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. That's powerful. These two Jewish believers, if we didn't have them, God is saying, if I didn't raise up Aquila and Priscilla, you wouldn't have these Roman letters. You'd, you'd, you'd just cut out. You, we wouldn't have the words of Peter talking about how Paul's letters are heavy-duty stuff, and you better not mess with them. So where do you factor in in the life of others as a Christian? You're not going to get your name written in the Bible unless mom and dad named you after somebody in the Bible. But you can get your name on the list of combatants who fought not in the church, but for the church. The churches, there are churches out there with people fighting each other. We, we know that's not what God wants except if you're fighting those who are bringing in heresies, which Jude did, and we'll get to that too. So those Christians in Rome, they really had no apostolic influence, and they were engaging Jews anyway, who rejected Christ as Messiah. Peter gets to Rome after Paul, and Paul had a hard time getting there himself. When the exiled Jewish Christians, such as Aquila and Priscilla, finally did return to Rome, when things cooled down, they found themselves no longer welcomed in the synagogues. So what happened? Well, they began to meet in the homes. And the Gentiles soon became the majority. Now, when someone says, well, we meet in a home like the early church, that's either not well thought out or they're up to something, I have found. First off, they, the Christians met in their homes because they weren't allowed, legally allowed, to meet in churches, to form churches. That didn't come for a couple of hundred years later. So they had to meet in homes once the synagogues booted them out. And uh, you, you, there was no question that this was a church. Oftentimes you get people meeting in their homes when we're not a church. We just don't want to go be under the authority of a church. And hopefully we'll grow into a church and we'll be the authority. But anyway, I digress. 
Because it's irritating over the decades dealing with this. People who steal sheep, they're desperate for people, people to follow them. They go to a church and they steal people from that church. And, and they think that this is somehow righteous. And it just evidences how ignorant they are of the spirit and of the scripture. But anyway, I further digress. Because I digress with this because I don't think a lot of Christians know this. And you should know it so you can identify and say, listen, this is not helping the body of Christ. Too many alternatives. Uh, anyway, coming back to this, they began to assemble the Christians in the homes, making Gentile converts. And under that scenario that I just laid out, this is how the church in Rome came to be. And Paul, writing his letter, again, careful, he's very careful to mention Jews and Christians separately in the same letter because they're in the same church. And you can, well, let's take, we'll take them both. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Now, by this, well, wait a minute, that's 1 John. I've never found Romans chapter 1, verse 3 in 1 John. Romans chapter 1, verse 13. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Well, that's what I was just trying to do. Saying, you need to know this. But anyway, he comes back. That I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. And then when he gets to chapter 2, in verse 17, he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and the rest, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God. And so following him, he doesn't just, you know, say, okay, heading, now to Gentiles, and begin to cover that. Okay, now to Jews. And then, no, he just goes all over the place. You've got to keep up with him. And that, again, drives some of the people who want to outline it to the T of, you know, a problem. Because he takes these righteous rabbit trails. I've never done that. <laughs> so he reminds the Gentile converts also in this letter of their indebtedness to the work, the spiritual work of the Jewish people. He essentially says to them, how did you get your Bible? How did you get the rest of the scriptures? You got it from the Jews. They were entrusted with this. And if it weren't for them, they would really slow down evangelism drastically. But you do have them. And it has sped up evangelism. And we've taken over the world. They've taken over places that they go. That's the riot in Ephesus. So the origin of this letter to the Romans is Corinth or Sencrea, which is a seaport about seven miles outside the city of Corinth. And there Paul writes this letter from the house of a man named Gaius. Now, this letter, Romans, is what Jude wanted to write to the church. He comes out and tells us that. But the Holy Spirit redirected him because of counterfeit Christians mingling in the church, trying to integrate by sneaking in and other nefarious deeds. Jude 3, beloved, this is Jude talking to the Christians. While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. Pause there. Well, that's what Romans is doing. That's why I talked about Hannah, the mother of Samuel, uh, giving this uh, succinct summary on, on salvation. Jude continues, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered for all to the saints. There's no new gospel coming. 
There's no Charles Russell and Joseph Smith bringing some private interpretation of Scripture. Those, that is anathema. That is a cursed behavior laid out in Scripture. Jude, again, says, I found it necessary. If you were to say, how did that happen? You'd say, the Holy Spirit moved me. Impressed upon me that I got to deal with these troublemakers coming into the church. Stealing away the truth. And that's why he, he thunders. He deals with them very thoroughly. And he says, the gospel, contend for it. Not against it. Contend for the faith. Once delivered. It's trustworthy. It's worth it. There's nothing like it. Converts that creep in need to be disfellowshipped if they're not converted they're not converted instantly. If someone comes into a church and says, I'm a Christian, but they're living in blatant sin, they're going to be disfellowshipped if we find out. That's how it's supposed to be. If a non-believer comes in and they're living that lifestyle, we're not going to disfellowship them. They're not professing Christ. But if they start trying to take people from truth, then they will be dealt with too. That's why we have these handcuffs in this room upstairs. Oh, sorry. No, that's, I didn't mean to say that. Anyway, they won't, they will be, you can't say disfellowship. You're not in fellowship, but they will be barred until they learn how to behave. This is, uh, when we get to Corinthians, we're going to find, find out that this is what we have to do. Thessalonians is very tough on it too. Anyway, the church at Corinth, that was the church in Rome. The church in Corinth where the letter starts, which is important because Corinth was a decadent city. And Paul was about fed up with going to the marketplace, looking at the window, seeing all the lewd things. You know, we go and we see, you know, uh, something on the impulse rack, a magazine or something. We go, oh, man, this is just lewd and wrong. Well, Paul had it in, in real life, people committing lewd acts in public. Years ago, when I was in Sicily, um, I observed lewd acts in public. In fact, Hunts Point in the Bronx, you can go and view, see lewd acts in public. Uh, not that there were bleachers there or anything like that. You're just driving down the street or walking down the street. Oh, man, where's the shame? Well, sin likes to take the shame out of it so it can thrive. Well, there's a rich background on how this letter came about. In ancient Greek theater, when they portrayed the person from Corinth, they almost always portrayed him as the drunk in the story. This was a stereotype. Because there were so many, well, a lot of sailors in Corinth, and, uh, you know, just a lot of, a big population. Of course, it was a lewd city, and, and the, the idolatry thrived. And so the, even the rest of the unbelieving world understood that Corinth, that lifestyle there was uh, unacceptable. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he preached to the Corinthians. When Paul wrote to the Roman, Romans, he wrote to them what he preached to the Corinthians. It all fits wherever you are. But they certainly, that city, influenced his writing to the Romans from Corinth. However, in spite of all that darkness... These men and women of Christ stacked up the Gentile converts. A lot of converts. Paul, God told Paul, I have a lot of people in this city, and you're going to be the one that I'm using to, to get them. 
So the Holy Spirit activated Paul in Corinth, used him, trained him, instructed him in Christ further. Already he had written Thessalonians and Galatians, and now he's just continuing as this dynamic character. And I never want to say these things taken away from the other apostles. It's just not recorded what they did. But this, this is no, in no way to say, well, Paul was out there doing it all. He was in Europe, and it did get recorded. Who is the man to limit God? And Paul's going to say, not us. Who's the courier of this letter then? How, you know, in those days, they didn't have the... There are parts of the ancient world that did have a postal system, from Persia to Sardis, for example. But overall... If you wanted the letter to reach some, someone, you had to take it, or someone had to take it. In this case, is a woman named Phoebe, and this is quite remarkable. Romans 16, verse 1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in St. Korea. Wait a minute, Paul, that should have been at your introduction. <laughs> but no, you got carried away with this whole gospel stuff. And so at the end, he said, oh yeah, now Phoebe. <laughs> and she was a businesswoman. Evidently, the Greek points in that direction when, we, when it talks about her in chapter 16. When she said to Paul, and she's a servant in the church in Corinth, St. Crea, same thing. She's a servant there, and she says, Paul, I have business in, in Rome. That lit a fire under that apostle. That stoked him. That electrified him. I don't think he saw what was coming. I think he said, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this letter to them. Dear Roman Christians, hi, this is Paul. I love Jesus Christ. And then by the time he gets to the 8th verse, there's this explosion. The dam bursts, and he begins to pour out, and he can't stop until he says, oh, by the way, Phoebe. Then there's the scribe. Tertius means third. Could have been a slave. Sometimes slaves were just given primus, number one, uh, you know, tertius, number three, cortus, number four. Segundus, you know, they were given these titles. He could have been. I, Tertius, Romans 16, 22, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. He's the scribe. I'll come back to him and Phoebe, not done with them. The host, Gaius, chapter 16. Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Evidently, another congregation there, in, uh, a congregation there in Rome, as opposed to the one that I mentioned, Aquila and Priscilla in, let me back up, confuse that. Gaius in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla have the church in their home in Rome. Paul is the teacher, of course, as verse 1 clearly says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. There's no authority in back of all that. There's nothing in there apologizing. I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. He's laying it out. And, of course, a man like Paul, he'd take a beating for that. The author is the Holy Spirit. Paul is the teacher. Tertius is the scribe. The Holy Spirit is the author. So Tertius, he was able to write fast enough, with accuracy, without breaking Paul's rhythm, his train of thought. Can you imagine if you always stop, Paul, hold on a second. What was that again? Well, you allowed some of that, but if you did too much of it, it's like, you know, never mind. Just say, uh, <laughs> God bless you, amen. But uh, so he's certainly a man of means. 
Gaius, whose house Paul wrote this letter from, took away the distractions. Paul didn't have to worry about going to fix dinner. He didn't have to worry about, you know, balancing the books. He just could focus on being the apostle that he was. So the Holy Spirit could draw from Paul that which he poured into Paul. Gaius had no idea the scripture scripture was being written under his roof in his house. Just imagine if he's writing a mortgage check out and he says, oh, by the way, scripture is being written in my house. It couldn't be that way, but it is that way. Then there's Aquila and Priscilla, who I mentioned earlier, who in Rome thwarted any corruption in Christianity. These two, they contended with the Jews, as I mentioned. They risked their lives to Paul. I mentioned that. But remember, they also corrected Apollos, who was very knowledgeable in the Old Testament Scripture and a great orator. And they had the decency enough to not put him on defense. When they went up to say, you know, there's some things that you're preaching that I don't think you have a clear understanding on, and let us tell you what we're saying. And they won him. That, I mean, a lot. most people don't have that skill. We would call it maybe tact. You know, I would go up and say, boy, Apollos, you should have messed that up. <laughs> I would not. But that ex- it's a caricature on how someone like me would handle it, where someone else who has tact would be able to just make Apollos just <laughs> pay him. He has $5, thanks for telling me. Paul, of course, he was being Paul, eager to put forth that which he first received. Whatever Christ poured in, he couldn't wait to pour out. As I mentioned, the vessels of Christ have spigots on them. We are, we, we can turn on a spigot and, and it pours out, or we can turn it off. The Holy Spirit hopefully is, controls the knob. Uh, I don't think Paul understood when he first started that his hello, this is Paul, would turn into a 7,000-word doctrinal thesis. Then there's Phoebe again. As I mentioned, the Greek describes her in, in its description of her, suggests very strongly that she was a wealthy businesswoman who cared for Paul, it tells us, incidentally. And, uh, well, maybe we should just look at that. We've, we've got another hour. <laughs> uh, it's in the Bible, I know it. I commend you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in San Crea. She's a servant. She's doing something in the church. That you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Here you go. Saints are living people. They're not voted in by other people. When you come to Christ, you are a saint. You may not behave like one, but you are. He says here, and assist her in whatever business... She has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and also myself. That's quite an endorsement from a man like Paul. And by this time, Paul has taken enough beatings and shipwrecks for everybody to know this is a man of God who has authority over the church of God. He is truly an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so here's Phoebe. Uh, Think of the excitement Uh, that she had when, I I don't think she looked at the letter before she got there. Well, maybe she she didn't suffer shipwreck on the way to Rome like Paul. Maybe she read the letter on the way. 
I don't know. But either way, when she first heard it, she had to say, man, this is why I love Paul so much. This is, this is preaching, whether it is in written form or from a pulpit. And so when she said, I have business in Rome, Paul, I'll be out of church for a few months. Paul said, Tertius, get your pad. I want to write them an introduction letter, and I want to just say hi to everybody there, my friends. If you think that your service in the church or your service for Christ is not important, imagine if Phoebe felt that way. Imagine if she lost the letter. Imagine, oh, I forgot to deliver it. Silly me. She doesn't. She delivers. And uh, it tells us all ministry is important. And I have to say, you know, when I talk about serving Christ, I have to put in serving the church because there are, there are those in Christ that feel serving outside of the church is sufficient. It is not sufficient. And only serving in the church is not. We serve where we are, like a lily among thorns or like a lily amongst Roses. Wherever we are, we are to bloom as Christians. We are to get involved. And there are many ways to do that. When Paul begins to lay it out later, and he says, you know, some of them have the, some have the gift of generosity. Some can give. Uh, you know, they, they can't serve in other places, but they serve over here. There's a place for everyone. And when I bring these things up, I'm not rebuking anyone. Maybe right now you're not serving. Maybe you've not felt the, the, the stir of the Spirit to serve. I'm not rebuking you for that. But I also cannot dismiss what the Bible teaches. Uh, you have to be stirred when God moves you. Uh, that's what we want, and not a moment before. Anyway, uh, you know, and I also want to pause here. If you're not a Christian, and you're listening to all this, you may be, a lot of it may be lost on you, but one thing is not. You're guilty before a holy God. You can't miss that. There's not a human being that can miss that, not one that can read and write. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to guess? That's what Satan wants you to do. He's got a nice little guess pad waiting for you. Just guess about what heaven is about. Just guess about who God is. Why don't you make him like you? You, know, you wouldn't do that to people. God wouldn't do that to people. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. And unless I reveal them, you couple that with Deuteronomy 29, 29, unless I reveal them, you're not getting them. But I have revealed enough. Why do you come to my house? Why do you sit in my furniture, on my furniture? Why do you listen to my servant? Because I'm stirring you, that's why. There are three relationships available to a human being in the Holy Spirit. I'll start at the, the last one is, of course, the filling of the Spirit, where you are able to just preach Christ and the gospel so clearly as his witness that it is, there is a power there available nowhere else in, in creation. Then there is the getting saved, which precedes that, of course. The Holy Spirit, of course, uh, every Christian is filled with the Spirit, uh, is, is full of the Spirit. But then there's a filling, a subsequent filling of the Spirit. And of course, if that weren't the case, there'd be no day of Pentecost. It would all just been fine after Jesus ascended to heaven. But the first one is when the Holy Spirit comes alongside of an unbeliever and begins to woo that unbeliever, to tell them, I love you. I care about you in this life, and I really care about where you're going after this life. And I want you to stop fighting me. 
Yeah, a whole lot of bad things have happened to you. Uh, Pick a number. That is no reason to keep me out of your life. What is keeping you from loving me back? And this is what it is all about. The church meets to get strong. Why? Why why do we want to be strong Christians? To obey Christ? Yes. And what is that supposed to do? Make us available to be used by Christ. I mentioned the Corinthian church when Paul got there. There were no Christians. And they stacked them up because of his preaching and his presence. And people like Aquila and Priscilla. They built a church that, though problematic, it thrived nonetheless. Well, uh, anyway, coming back, to closing this up. Paul instructed all the people he came in touch with to be in touch with Christ through his teaching and the life that trained him others would see it would be drawn in by it and the Holy Spirit would woo them to salvation God seeing it all so let's just review this and then we'll pray or we have communion uh That word communion for a Christian tells us we have friendship with God Almighty because of the death of God the Son. And it is a time that the Holy Spirit is saying, I look forward to being with you at this table on earth and in heaven, world without end. The church started 33 years after the birth of Christ, give or take. And the church in Rome started by pilgrim Jews returning from Pentecost. They took the gospel back with them, but they lacked a lot. As I mentioned, the Jewish ringleaders began having uh, confrontation with each other, Christians and Jews, or rabbinical Jews alike, until they were pushed out. The church continued there apart from the synagogues, and then the Jews came back and joined up with the Gentiles and whatever Jews were remaining. Paul then wrote a letter to those Christians in Rome. And again, Romans 1, verse 11, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. Then, about four years later, Paul arrives in Rome physically. And we remember from Acts how those Christians in that church traveled 40, 30, and 40 miles out to receive Paul. I mean, uh, you know, we have a short trip to the airport to to receive a Christian coming from another place. These people walked out there, had that return trip on them, just so they could escort him back in love. Powerful story. Paul arrives in Rome, and about uh, a couple of years later, he is released. Peter later arrives in Rome. Rome burns. There's a big fire in Rome. Burns down, if I recall, a third of the city. The Christians are soon vilified for that. Some believe Nero did it uh, because he wanted to redevelop it. Whatever it was, the Christians were then vilified. Paul was rearrested. Paul was then beheaded. John, the apostle, mostly in Jerusalem, taking care of Mary... Till she died, because Jesus said, behold your mother from the cross, take care of Mary. John stays in Jerusalem to do that. But after Jerusalem, when Mary dies, Ephesus becomes the center of 
his operations until he, too, is arrested. And church tradition says that was about 95 uh, years after the birth of Christ, when he then writes, of course, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's an overview of what's going on at this point. And I'll close with this verse. We'll pray, have communion, and then uh, be unleashed on the world. Romans 16, verse 26, But now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. The point of me reading that verse are the last four words. Obedience to the faith. This is what the Roman letter is about. This is what everything from Genesis to Revelation is about. These guys of the Bible, these men and women, they did not feel, you know, we need to adjust our message to the culture. The culture's dead. There are two cultures. You can have a citizenship with this world. You can have one with God also. It's the kingdom of God. That's the one we're interested in. That's the culture we're after. That's what we preach. No Christian should alter God's word or dumb it down. We can explain it without dumbing it down uh, just to not offend people. God is offended by sin. Well, I, could, I feel another sermon coming on. Let's turn to... All right, let's pray. <laughs> Our Father, thank you for... These real people, real things, may now, we as individuals, not just close our Bibles and forget about it, but may something stand out to us, at least something that stands out to us, that influences us a little closer to our Christ-likeness. We thank you for these, your teachings. If you have never opened your heart to Christ, you have yet perhaps another opportunity, or maybe this is your first. Maybe no one has explained to you the Bible, which is the Word of God, the thoughts of God, from Him to man. The Bible is about God, and it is about man. God wants everyone to be right with Him. It's not going to happen, but it can happen to you. It's happened to me. It's happened to countless others. If you would like peace with God, then make this prayer. Call out to him in this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. I am guilty before you. I have no defense, except I can ask you to forgive me. I can come to you and ask for pardon. I can name you as my Lord and Savior by faith, and I'm doing it right now, by faith, by trust in you. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. There's no one else that died for me in my place and took my sin and its punishment upon himself but you. There's no one good enough, and there's no one powerful enough to rise from the dead. I give my life to you right here, right now, and ask that from this day forward, you would be my Lord and my Savior, that you would fill me with your spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.